welcome to the first episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. David Sussman, licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, where he is director of both the Psychology Internship Consortium Program and the Harris Psychological Services Center. In addition to his roles at UK, Dr. Sussman runs a website that provides mental health resources and inspiration. Welcome. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Hannah. It's great to be able to spend a little time with you. Tell me what attracted you to the field of psychology. What made you decide to become a psychologist? It was not a direct path, let me say that. So uh, I started out in uh, undergraduate uh, school as a as a pre-med. So I thought I was going to be a physician of some sort, probably actually not a psychiatrist. But incidentally, I just thought, well, I wanted to be some kind of a doctor and uh, started out as pre-med and took, you know, the calculus and the chemistry and the organic and the biology and the physics and all that stuff and did really pretty much okay with all of that except organic chemistry, which seemed like foreign language to me. And so uh, I had a lot of trouble with organic chemistry, uh, like really, really struggled. And uh, so that made me rethink my uh, my pre-med decision. I had started out as a biology major and then I, I had taken some psychology classes, which I seemed to really like better than the biology. So uh, I think it was maybe the end of my sophomore year, I switched over and became a psychology major. So that kind of put me on the uh, psychology path. However, I still kind of clung to the idea of med school and I actually applied to med school but because of my less than stellar science performance, um, I didn't get in med school. And so I was like, okay, now what do I do? And uh, so I thought, well, maybe I can take this psychology thing a step further. And so I went to, uh, I got a master's degree in psychology. It was a two-year program in clinical psychology. And then I thought, well, this is pretty good. And then I said, I'm going to take a little time off. And so I got a job in a community mental health center, actually in a rural area near where I grew up in Virginia. And I worked there um, and really, really liked it. And then so after about a year, I thought, well, let me go back to school. So then I went to, uh, that's what brought me to the University of Kentucky, where I came for my uh, PhD in clinical psychology. And then I was on my path. Wow. And you're still there today. Yeah, still there. So yeah, moved to Lexington for grad school and I'm still in Lexington. And ironically, I'm now back working at the University of Kentucky uh, once again. And in between um, your time from from graduating from graduate school at University of Kentucky to moving back to your role now, didn't you work at Eastern Medical Center or hospital? Uh, Eastern State Hospital, yeah, in uh, Lexington, which is one of the four public psychiatric hospitals in the state of Kentucky. Um, I took the job at Eastern State right out of grad school. In fact, I was not quite even graduated when I took that job and uh, thought, oh, you know, I'll work there a year or two because I really thought I was going to be a private practice psychologist doing outpatient therapy. And so I took the job at Eastern State, which was, you know, very sort of intensive inpatient um, psychiatric hospital and uh, ended up working there 24 years. So, you know, go figure, right? Um, and, and along the way, soon after I started working at Eastern State, um, I had just a part-time uh, instructor position back at the University of Kentucky. And so I kind of got reconnected at the University of Kentucky and then uh, became the training clinic director. And so I did that part-time for many, many years while I was working at Eastern State. 
And then um, in 2016, I left Eastern State and I took a full-time faculty position back at UK, uh, back in the clinical psych program. You've had quite the range of experiences in um, psychology. What is your favorite part of being a psychologist? Um, I really enjoy, have enjoyed the variety. Uh, you know, I have worked uh, inpatient. I worked outpatient. Uh, when I was in training, I actually got to do uh, uh, some pretty cool things. Like I worked for a year at the federal prison. I worked for a year at the VA hospital. Um, you know, I've worked in community mental health, worked in university settings. So I really enjoyed the variety. The other thing that, that's just been uh, terrific throughout the years, all the incredible Colleagues and coworkers and students that I've been able to work with um, have really appreciated all those uh, relationships over the years. And I think the other the other favorite part of being a psychologist is the work uh, kind of really aligns nicely with some of my personal values, which really have to do with things like public service and advocacy and some of those things. So there have been a lot of recent changes with um, COVID-19. And what do you think um, will occur within the field of psychology as a whole? Or what changes do you see happening um, as a result of recent events? Well, that's, you know, such a great question. And one that we still, we don't really know the answer yet. Uh, you know, here we are. We'll say that we're in um, early May 2020. Um, but uh, a lot of people speculate there's going to be this uh, sort of tidal wave of mental health needs in the coming months and years. And I, I suspect there will be, yes, you know, an increase in mental health needs. You know, how dramatic that's going to be remains to be seen. Um, I think it's great that psychologists are being sort of forced to uh, ramp up their knowledge of um, telehealth and telepsychology and to be able to reach people more remotely. And, and I think that's going to continue to be a great option for a lot of people moving forward. But, you know, I, I I think there's going to be a lot of mental health needs in a lot of different aspects as we as we move forward. But I also think what's kind of neat is that psychology is, is a great field to be able to meet a lot of those needs and to be able to contribute in many ways because we have a lot of pretty talented people who I think are, are well poised to step up and try to address some of the needs. Definitely. I think that is um, kind of a silver lining in that as we develop the ability to do more telemedicine, hopefully people in communities that are underserved and lack of lack access to care will start being able to get a little more readily in the future. I hope so. Yeah. So thinking more, more broadly, what kind of impact do you hope to make in the field um, or in your community uh, through your practice of psychology? I know you have um, your blog with stories of hope, and I think that that already does such a service for the community, but I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little more. Uh, well, first, thank you for that. Um, you know, I you know I worked in, in direct service, you know, in the hospital and other settings for a long, long time. And, and in that setting, as many psychologists work, you do have that immediate impact where you're helping sort of one one person at a time or a small group of people at a time. And, and so that that um, I think was always very satisfying to me, and is a really important role, obviously, for psychologists. Um, the other way that probably more relates to my current work is through my my work with teaching and training graduate students. I feel like I'm helping to sort of train the next generation of, of psychologists and mental health professionals. And so there's that sense of being able to sort of have the next uh, you know generation that's going to hopefully replace me is going to be well poised to provide a lot of good services to people. And then the other, I guess, uh, 
avenue for me, you know, through things like my blog and through public education efforts I've been involved in and advocacy efforts is you have that ability to, to uh, sometimes influence systems or larger scale, um, uh, you know, things like our public mental health system or other things through legislative advocacy. And so I, I've enjoyed that opportunity to try to uh, influence things on, on that larger level too. Yeah. So thinking about kind of making changes in larger systems, I imagine that can feel daunting at times. What um, helps you maintain motivation? Uh, you know, I whenever I've undertaken some uh, sort of goal or project, I think the first the first thing you always want to think about is, you know, is it a good worthwhile goal? You know, is it something you really want to devote your time and energy because we're all limited in how many things we can take on at once, but so, you know, make sure it's a good, worthwhile goal that you, you're committed to. And, and I've always really uh, found it helpful to break things down into the small steps because things do seem overwhelming otherwise. But if you can just uh, look at some sort of short-term steps that you can make some measurable progress, that always helps me feel like, you know, I can be more motivated. Um, the other thing I've learned is to not to be so impatient. <laughs> I can tend to be impatient. And so I, I, a lot of these things, you know, when we go and we, we address mental health bills or whatever, we know sometimes it takes years to keep going back to get these things finally passed. Um, and then I think the other thing, perhaps now even more than ever, is understand that, you know, just when you undertake something or when you launch something, it doesn't have to be perfect. You need to just sometimes be okay with, with the imperfection and get it out there. And then certainly you can modify it or, or revise it or tweak it after you, you get things started. And, and also I'm a great believer in not reinventing the wheel. So if there are resources that you can use, um, there are very few things that are totally new under the sun. And there's almost always guidance and resources that will help you uh, get started or, or speed up your progress in some way. And so I think you always want to use those good resources. I think that's a very good strategy. I saw your blog post listing um, some of the coronavirus resources. And I think that's helpful because there's so many things out there. It's hard to know um, which which tools are valuable and which things you'd be better off not reading. Yeah, it's been pretty incredible how quickly things have, have really kind of emerged. I mean, I think probably those resources didn't even exist, you know, six weeks ago, most of them. Mm-hmm. So. Can you think of any specific unexpected challenges that you faced and how, if you could give some details around how you overcame those challenges? Yeah, there are always challenges. <laughs> <laughs> Some bigger, some smaller. Uh, you know, our most recent challenge with the uh, with the pandemic was um, all of our pretty much uh, in-person clinical placements for our grad students were suspended, including our own training clinic where where they provide psychotherapy services. And so we, like most of these settings, were wanting to just get telehealth going as quickly as we could. And so. Uh, Kind of like what I what I just said, we had to go find the good resources and kind of do our, our research and background work. And we got a, a team together of four or five people and we started meeting and talking and pulling things together. And we, we had to go do some training ourselves. And then we had to train our grad students and our supervisors. And then we had to create a policy and procedure manual. And we had to, you know, get all the technology pieces in place. And um it, it was a lot, you know, a lot of work, but we were able to um, start our telehealth services, um, you know, after about four or five weeks. So I guess in some respects that was pretty quick. Um, but yeah, the challenges you don't even think about, like, uh, you know, w- 
we thought, well, the hardest thing is going to be just the ethics and legality and some of that. Well, that wasn't the hardest thing. The hardest thing was the technology because we had to have a secure uh, video conferencing platform. And then we had to figure out, you know, how to do uh, uh, scheduling and, you know, all these different things that you just, you don't, you don't think about, but uh, the technology piece really ended up being the hardest. Yeah, there are definitely lots of hoops to jump through, I think, from every side for mm-hmm. um, for telehealth right now. And then kind of going back to your um, passion for mental health advocacy and the impact that you've made, how do you get others on board and kind of what, what tools do you use to get others committed to mental health advocacy? Yeah, I always talk about advocacy. There are two parts, but one is getting informed and then the second part is getting involved. And I think you have to be, you have to take some time to do both because the good advocates are well-informed. And they're informed with hopefully some science-based information that's you know kind of reliable and and accurate and and so you take some time to really get informed about the issues um, and then you have to get involved. I mean you have to get out there and you have to begin communicating and and uh, trying to get your, your message across or to try to meet you know begin to meet your goals. But I, I I have always found that just really open regular communication is vital. You know whether that's in person or, or electronic or whatever format, but to really communicate openly with people and to, I think, tie the uh, task or the goal to some higher cause that people can relate to. So if they can feel invested in it on, you know, maybe a personal level or on a values level, then then obviously they're going to, I think, be more, more interested or more committed. And I think uh, it really helps if you can just try to be um, transparent and genuine. You know, because if people get a sense that you're someone who's trustworthy and that you have uh, some integrity, then again, they're going to be more likely to want to jump on board with whatever you're doing. So thinking about, um, for example, if someone wanted to get involved in advocacy at maybe the state or the national level, what what first steps would you recommend for them, even for finding resources? Um, I, I've written a lot about this on my blog, so you may want to refer them to that mm-hmm. resource at some point. But um, there are so many, so many uh, easy, quick ways to get involved in advocacy. Um, and I actually have made a few lists of those. But, you know, even if you're just on social media and you find something that's um, useful that you can post or tweet or retweet or, uh, you know, something that you can share your social media platforms is such an easy thing to do or you can begin following people to learn more um and then you know you take it on up the ladder because obviously you can get into things like actually volunteering to support worthy organizations or causes or volunteering your time or writing articles or op-eds or starting your own uh, blog or doing a guest post for someone else's blog there, there are just so many different ways and i i uh, i also wrote a post one time that talked about trying to make your advocacy a mini habit, like a little tiny habit, so that mm-hmm. maybe you could commit five minutes a day to uh, advocacy. And that's that's sort of my personal goal. I think if I can do five minutes a day on advocacy, that's, that's sometimes all I can do. And that may be just doing some stuff on social media, or it may be just uh, some quick email or something. But if you can, if you can incorporate it into your routine, kind of like, you know, you brush your teeth every day, well, okay, I can do five minutes of advocacy every day. And so, Usually, a lot of things you start, and if you enjoy it at that really small level, then you want to do more. And so then maybe you decide, okay, today I can do 10 minutes. So, um, you know, start small. I love that. 
So you had a great post on leadership in times of crisis on your blog recently. So how are you thinking about leadership now as COVID-19 kind of continues to impact all of us? Yeah, I, yeah, I wrote that post, you know, just a couple of weeks maybe into the crisis. And I had been watching um, various uh, public figures and politicians on TV and on the media and so forth. And, you know, it just immediately occurred to me, some of these people are doing such a great job and some are not doing as good a job. And so, uh, you know, I, I can't even honestly even remember some of the things that I listed in that post, but, you know, it was some of the things like, you know, the good leaders, they are great communicators and they do want to have reliable information and they do, they are persistent and they're approachable. And, you know, those are, those are all the things that particularly in a time of crisis, you want somebody who's solid, who's, who's going to stand with you, who's going to also, I think I also mentioned being uh, warm and encouraging and, you know, having that relatability because, you know, sometimes you need more than just the facts. You need that sort of proverbial or I guess in this world, virtual shoulder of support. Um, so you need that, uh, as we call it in psychology, emotional intelligence too. You know, sometimes it's not all about just what you know in the books, but some of it's about, um, how you relate to people and how you're able to uh, use your people skills. And so, yeah, we need, you know, we need good leaders right now, certainly uh, more than ever and people who can help us see a path through this and, and um, uh, you know, to, to see that there's, there's a way forward. Yeah. I remember reading in one of your posts, um, how you enjoy watching Bashir come on at 5 p.m. every day. Kind of that consistency, yeah. I think, is um, a really nice element that we have here in Kentucky. Yeah, and, you know, for your, uh, you know, listeners who maybe some may not even be in Kentucky, but our Governor Andy Bashir, you know, has been, uh, uh, I think, drawn a lot of praise for his uh, leadership through the crisis. And, yeah, he's on there every day and has a press conference and, What's great is he not only shares the facts and figures, but it's very it's very supportive, I think, and it's a very um, you know team oriented kind of approach and one that's that sort of and it's, and you know we talk about also um, tying tying things to a higher cause and he he refers to it a lot as this test of humanity, um, you know, and how what what everybody is doing really is helping save lives and so he's really, I think, striking that note, which is, uh, you know, great to help people sort of be able to bond together through this. Um, can you describe an example of a leadership leadership experience that you've had in your career, either with you leading or someone else, kind of a great leadership experience or one of the best leadership experience so you could remember? Oh, let's think about that. Yeah. So I, you know, the, I guess the first thought I would say is that, um, I don't know that this leadership was really taught to me very much in graduate school. I mean, I had some opportunities where I was able to do some supervisory kinds of things and whatever, but uh, I think maybe we, we need a little more, uh, more of that <laughs> in our training programs. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't imagine a career where I would have a lot of leadership experience, but as it turns out, I've had a number of opportunities and, and, you know, one of the, one of the ones that, that kind of comes to mind for me is, um, I did a lot of work with the Kentucky Psychological Association through committees and, you know, different work groups and whatever, and then um, was elected to their board of directors as a, like an at-large representative. And so kind of got to see how the the board of directors of a state psychological association worked. Um, and then long story short, I was elected president of the Kentucky Psychological Association, which is a three-year um, term as president-elect and then president and past president. And so then I really got to see kind of how um, you know, how leadership at that level works with a professional organization. 
um, in more recent years, um, I have been fortunate to serve Kentucky as the representative to the American Psychological Association Council of Representatives, which is the legislative body for the American Psychological Association or APA. And that that's probably been one of the one of the most terrific leadership experiences I've ever had because that that's a group of about 175 psychologists from from all over the the country and actually Canada and some of the the uh, territories and and it really uh, looks at moving the field and the science and profession of psychology forward and that that group gets to meet. Um, uh, and, and to really talk about a lot of policy issues and things that, that affect not only psychologists, but also the larger uh, community um, of our society. And so that, that's probably been one of, the, one of the greatest experiences I've had because it's exposed me to a lot of wonderful leaders, and I've gotten to see kind of their, you know, their different leadership style. Yeah, so thinking about maybe one of those leaders, um, what exactly did they do that made it such a good leadership experience or or what features really stood out to you? Yeah, what's neat about those organizations is every year the leader turns, you know, it rotates. And so you have a different like president every year. And so you do get to see the different leadership styles. Um, and and I was a uh, I was a representative for Kentucky for six years. So I got to see, you know, six different APA presidents and how they led the the association. And, and so you see these different styles, but you also see how people can be very different, but they can also really be effective. Um, and so, you know, everybody kind of brings their own style and their personality to that leadership role. But one, you know, one sort of common thread, I think, is that they were all really good at uh, being inclusive and letting uh, all the different voices in the room uh, be able to contribute and to feel welcome and validated and to be able to work together to kind of find compromises. And um, so I think all of these leaders, they were kind of really good uh, mediators um, and they were able to take this large group of people who have really different backgrounds and experiences and coming from all different um, types of uh, uh, psychology roles in their careers and representing different interest groups and representing different states and they were able to, uh, you know, take this uh, kind of very um, diverse group and, and help them all come together to really think about some of the critical issues that were important for the field of psychology. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah, I think it, it takes practice to learn how to bring people together with different goals and different agendas in mind. Yeah. So what lessons would you give to other psychologists about being an effective leader, either from leadership experience you've described or from other work that you've done? I have thought about that. Um, so a couple of things I think is um, if you want to be a leader, you do at some point have to become a little more intentional about learning how to be a leader. And so, you know, there are leadership books, there are trainings, there are, you know, different things that you can do to actually learn more about effective leadership skills um, it's probably not a great idea for a leader to just have never, never studied the whole topic of leadership, uh, which is great about what, you know, what you're involved in with our Kentucky Leadership Academy, because it gives our early career psychologists an opportunity to kind of delve into this topic in a much more in-depth way. So I, I think that's great. Um, I think also you got to be a good listener. You really have to first listen to people to understand what they're issues and needs are before you then somehow try to influence them or move them forward. You first have to listen to them. Um, I think leaders need to have a really clear vision. They need to have a plan and it needs to be, as I've said a couple of times, kind of based in some values that people feel feel good about. 
um, and to be able to communicate that plan and that vision in an open way to help people understand where they're headed. Um, you can't give up. You know, we kind of talked about you have to just keep coming back. You have to be really persistent. You have to keep showing up. Um, and then, you know, more to kind of my uh, experience, uh, you have to really sometimes be an advocate for those who may not have a voice or who are not able to have their voice heard or to show them how to make their voice heard. But you have to, I think, in many ways, be an advocate for others. And then, you know, along the lines of what we talked about with sort of emotional intelligence, I think you really have to be um, someone who's compassionate and you have to be someone who's kind because um, sometimes those are the qualities that um, are needed the most. Those are some great takeaways. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time today. I think those are, um, that's all the time we have left. Um, do you have anything else you want to add or share with our listeners? Uh, no, I'm so happy to, uh, uh, I'll just say I'm happy to be uh, with you here and to have this conversation. And, um, you know, these are, are tough times that we're going through, but, um, you know, we're, we're going to see a way through this. And I think, um, um, all right, just uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Leadership Narratives of the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible.